Can you hear me okay? Cool. All right. So if, if you have your Bibles, please uh, go ahead and turn to the book of James, chapter 2. Book of James, chapter 2. I've gotten the looks already. Now, I, um, while you make your way uh, there to the book of James, I want to um, just share a couple of things with you. One of them is that we all know I'm going through the book of John. We tend to preach uh, through books over here, and I'm going through the book of John right now. Uh, we have hit chapter 10 already, actually. And, um, but on my own, on my own uh, devotional time, on my own reading of the scriptures, uh, on my time, my heart lately has been gravitating towards the book of James, and particularly to this subject of faith works, faith plus works, justification, the whole, the whole thing. And um, as the day approached for me to preach, I started thinking more and more about that and being hit uh, more and more with this topic, this subject, and especially this uh, text of Scripture. So um, I, I made a decision of preaching. It's not like you, you're not getting any Jesus because Joe is going through the book of Luke at the same time, and he's the main preacher, teacher. So I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to attack this text right here, to deal with this text. And I never really told anybody. I made a decision, and I didn't tell anybody what the particular text was or what I was going to preach on, except for on Tuesday we had a meeting with the Gospel Coalition, and one of the shepherds, one of the preachers there, he asked, Ask me what you're going to preach on. And then uh, I told him I'm going to preach on justification, on faith alone, and, uh, and um, out of James. I never said what the verses were. That was actually the time when Joe found out that I was taking a turn. Because I had just made a decision, and uh, we didn't have the time uh, to talk about that. And he's pretty easygoing. If there isn't any red flag, he'll ask me, is that, you know, are you sure? And then he'll go with it, unless I'm, you know, some crazy thing. So uh, that's when he found out, but I never told him the verses. And then uh, we tried to get an order of service here. You know, well, let's talk about the songs that we're going to sing and the text we're going to uh, uh, teach from and, and the reading of the scriptures. So Bob, our main reader, he texts me saying, I've been thinking of reading this Sunday, uh, James 2, 14 through 26. That sh- that is, that's exactly my text today. And no one knew about it. And I was a little bit insecure. I felt comfortable enough but, uh, to go to this text. But it, it's a big change. And, and that shook me to the core. I said, Bob, I, I don't know what to say because honestly no one knew, but that's exactly my text. So we went back and forth and we made a decision on, 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 on reading Acts 15, which is... Uh, relevant to our text today, but it, it's just uh, one of those God stories where, where um, it just shows his his care, his particular care for for his flock, and gives a certain confirmation, and, and kind of lets us know that hey, I, I'm in this thing. I am your shepherd, like I'm preaching John 10. I am your shepherd. I I, I am leading you through this. I I do care for my people. I do care for my sheep, so it, it's just a, it was a, a neat experience, and uh, uh, it gives one confidence to preach the word of God because the Holy uh, Spirit is in it. Now, having said all of that, if you have um, your Bibles open to the Book of James, chapter two, we're going to read uh, verses fourteen through twenty-six. This is what the Word of God says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, quote, you have faith and I have works, end quote. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one? You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for, for your care, for your leading through your Holy Spirit of your sheep. I pray, Father, that um, you would send your Spirit today and that you would cause us to marvel at Jesus and his atoning work, life and death and resurrection on, on our behalf. I pray that you would speak powerfully and prophetically to your people today and that they would be transformed. That they would, as James calls us to do, they would live by faith and see what you do, all the works that you have prepared for them. The time has arrived. It is crucial, Father, that uh, the Lord Jesus increases and, and I disappear. I pray that you protect your people and you cause them to grow through the preaching of your holy, inspired, living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, in dealing with this text, I feel like there's an elephant in the room because I could feel the weight when I was reading some parts of this text when he says, we're not justified by faith, justified by works. I can feel some of you thinking, what is he reading? Is this even in the Bible? I mean, I'm a Protestant. I believe in faith alone, okay? We are justified by grace through faith alone. This caused a whole war in the 16th century. What is James even saying? Is this the Apocrypha? Is this a legit book? What is Marcelo saying? Do I have to call another elder? He's going to have to vacate the pulpit. It seems like he is at odds with the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul, clearly in, in, in Romans, he'll say that we maintain that we are justified by grace through faith alone. The doctrine of faith alone is one of the pillars of the Christian faith. Biblical Christianity will stand or fall on this doctrine. If you take away the doctrine of faith alone, you have something else. You do not have biblical Christianity anymore. When you say that you can add works to your faith, when you say that you can save yourself by your good works, you have just departed from what historically has been called biblical Christianity. So it feels like they are at odds. It feels like there is a contradiction. And right, right off the bat, I don't know what that means, by the way. Right off the bat, I'm going to tell you that um, there is a contradiction in words. Words contradict themselves frequently. We see that in, 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 um, in language every day. I mean, words can be tremendously painful. There, there are great means for communication, of course, but communicating is hard. Like, for example, if I say to you that yesterday I spent my whole Saturday afternoon 
playing football. My family played football with the LeMays. But then you're talking to Pastor Joe, and, and he says, oh, oh yeah, yesterday we spent the whole afternoon playing soccer with the Brazilians. I don't, I don't know what we were thinking. They slaughtered us. Uh, which is it? Did you guys play soccer or football? <laughs> Was it soccer or football? They are conflicting reports of the same story. Someone must be not telling the truth. Because those words, if they're devoid, if they, they're divorced from, from their context and their authors, they can be communicating different things. Therefore, you would catch someone in a lie. But then when you put those words back in their context and you attach them to their authors, you'll see that there's no contradiction at all. Because I wasn't born in the U.S. I was born outside of the U.S. I was brought up elsewhere and it seems like, I want to say most of the rest of the world refer to the game soccer as football. Therefore, you know, even as enculturated as I've been by living my whole adult life here, basically, um, sometimes I still slip and I'll mention, I'll say that, I'll say football instead of soccer because it's just too many years. So, but then you'll see that Joe and I, we're not lying at all. We're not contradicting ourselves at all, even though our words contradict themselves. But there is no contradiction in what we are communicating or teaching. We're saying exactly the same things. Words can mean the same thing. Words can, the same word can mean different things, right? You know, rock. Is it a music style? Is it something you do on a, on a, on a rocking chair? Or is it a pebble? It can, you have to ask people or the author what 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 do you mean? You know you have to learning to find out what the authorial what the author's intent is is part of rightly handling the word of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul says, "Study to show yourself approved." As someone who has not to be ashamed, but knows how to rightly divide the word. We have to do this exercise. For example, uh, uh, another way that there's a verbal contradiction, but not a contradiction in, in, in teaching, in communicating, in what is being communicated, is, for example, I was having breakfast with my wife, and um, you know, there was a coffee pot, my my. My cup was in front of the coffee pot. I reached for it. I, I hit the thing. I spilled coffee everywhere. It was a mess. But then you ask Lillian, and she'll say, Oh, yeah, we, he did get burned. He did spill the coffee. You know, his cup was behind the, the coffee pot. Which is it? The cup was behind the coffee pot, or the cup was in front of the coffee pot? Well, we were sitting in front of each other. The coffee pot was in the middle of us, in, in between us. From my perspective, my cup is in front of the coffee pot. From where she's seen, from her point of view, my cup is not in front. It, it's behind the coffee pot. So you have to know, sometimes authors will deal with the same issue from different points of view. That's very possible. Contradiction in words, but not an actual contradiction in what is being communicated. Did I lose you? Okay. Now, we see that all the time. If everything is important, then nothing is important, right? If everything is good, then nothing is good. We do that all the time. We talk about this. If, you, if I didn't lose you, I'm going I'm to move on. We, we have to learn how to interact with the authors of Scripture. Now, Romans 3.28, I just have to address it because it seems like there are odds. In, in Romans 3.28, Paul will say, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Then again, in Romans uh, 4, verse 5, he'll say kind of the same thing. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justified the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, Paul is teaching his, in, in, in his letter to the Romans, he's teaching that no one can earn the pardon, of God, uh, uh, the pardon and forgiveness for their sins by their works. No one can be declared righteous 
in the presence of, in the presence of God in the courts of heaven by what they do. There's nothing we can do to deserve the grace of God and be cleansed for, from our sin and be declared forgiven and acquitted and positively righteous as if I had the life of Jesus. Perfect. There's no work whatsoever that can do that job. Paul is breaking up in detail what the gospel is in Romans and showing what it is, right? What, what, faith, what the gospel is. Now, James is not necessarily doing the same thing. When you look at James in our text, uh, uh, James 2.24, he'll say, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we may think, we might have a problem here, but to understand this affirmation, this uh, 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 statement of James, we have to not divorce it from its context and author and what James is dealing with, what he's trying to communicate. We have to look at the whole section, this whole section of Scripture and learn what James is saying. James is not breaking down the gospel and showing him what it is, every single part of it. James is assuming the gospel and what he's doing and showing what it does. What the gospel does. What saving faith does. It's not fighting Paul. This is prior to Paul, by the way. Prior to, to what Paul wrote. So we have to understand these words in, in their particular context. In other words, James is concerned not about pitting faith against works or, or maybe works added to faith as if faith alone, uh, you've you got to do some works on your own. That's not what he's doing. He never says, I'll show you works without faith. He cannot be charged with that. That is unfair to him. He never says that there's a divorce between faith and works. In fact, he repudiates that idea, and we're going to see uh, uh, why. And he actually puts them in connection. He makes a positive connection between faith and works. In verse 18, he says that, I'll show you my faith by my works. He just made a positive, beautiful, holy connection between saving faith and works. Faith, I mean, uh, works back up, support, show, demonstrate what true saving faith is. I mean, we do that all the time, don't we? 76% of the population of this country identify themselves as Christians. Have you watched the news lately? Is there a disconnection between this profession and what we see in the news? We watch the news, we're like, Christian nation, you've got to be kidding me. There's murder, child abduction. There's all kinds of sins happening all the time in large amounts. There is a disconnection between this profession of faith and what we see in the news. We expect to see evidence of this profession. I think that's exactly where James is leading us. Let's look at, at, at verse 14, for example, the beginning of this section, what James is saying. He'll say, what good is it, my brothers? Can that save faith save him? He's not saying can faith save anybody. He's saying that particular kind of faith. Can that save faith save him? That as opposed to this or the other. So there are kinds of faith. And James is extremely concerned with the kind of faith that his people will have. Can that sa faith save him? Uh, the answer is no. A faith that does not produce any works, it's not justifying faith in James' mind. It's just not justifying faith. He has some very fun names to describe that type of faith. Another way to read this verse would be, for example, can that faith justify him instead of save him? I mean, it's really a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. You know, we see that Paul is dealing with the only way to be justified, faith. You know, declared not guilty and positively righteous in the heavenly courts and obtain forgiveness of sins. That's faith. Now, James is concerned with 
what justifying faith looks like. It's a serious matter. So far, he has said a few things about faith. He starts, I mean, verse 3 of chapter 1, he starts talking about faith already. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Then he goes on all the way to verse 18, explaining that faith perseveres, encouraging his people, commanding his people to persevere in the midst of trials, because that's what justifying faith does. He finishes the chapter, he goes on to the, to the end of the chapter, saying that faith not only hears the word, but does the word. Faith does the word. And he, he makes no bones about it. He'll say, be doers of the word, not hearers only. It's a big issue. It's a big, big issue. Now, we see that they're addressing different to topics, or at least the same topic, salvation, but from different angles. Paul's, Paul's dealing with the way to be justified. James is concerned with the, the type of faith that justifies. Now, Paul's not denying that works are part of salvation. What Paul's saying is that works do not accomplish that particular aspect of salvation, namely, atonement for your sins. Your works cannot bleed. The Bible says that there is no remission for sins if there is no shedding of blood. Works are very much part of our salvation, and that's what James is arguing for. They just don't accomplish forgiveness of sins. They don't merit God's favor. The only way to be saved, to be justified, is to trust God's free grace. Praise Jesus. Praise God. That is the only way you can be saved. In fact, our works are like filthy rags, according to the Bible. In that aspect of trying to earn God's favor, that's how the Bible describes it. Now, there are other ways to show harmony between these two authors. I'm going to labor this point a little bit because uh, I think it's going to clarify so much text of, of James. For example, for example, Galatians 5, uh, let's read verse 6. If you can, uh, go there. Uh, if not, just listen. But uh, in Galatians uh, chapter 5, Paul's going to talk about this side of salvation, what, what works do in, in, in this side of salvation. Not in, in the aspect of earning God's favor, but just sanctification, just working itself out. Now, so where is it? Uh, Galatians uh, verse 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, Paul just said that obedience to the law, here represented by the word circumcision, obedience to the law to earn God's salvation counts for nothing. Paul here makes it clear that the issue is not obedience to the law or circumcision or uncircumcision. The issue is what, according to Paul, according to this book, to this verse, Galatians 5, 6, what is the only thing that counts with God? Faith. It's the only thing that counts with God. It's not circumcision, nor uncircumcision. They don't count for anything. But only, the last part of the verse, only faith working through love. Hmm. In Christ Jesus, only faith. So the issue here is, Faith. Only faith counts. And Paul made it clear. Now, James reads this. He's going, that's what, that's what I'm talking about. When I talk about works, I'm not saying, you know, you have to do these rituals. We saw that they agree in, in Acts 15, in the public reading of the Scriptures. They were both present. Paul actually fought some guys there. And... and James settled the whole dispute. So, you know, leave the Gentiles alone. They don't have to be circumcised. What matters faith working itself through love. I think that's exactly what James is trying to teach his people, his churches. Mainly Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he is the leader of the Christian movement in Jerusalem. 
mainly he's talking to, to Jewish believers. Sending this letter out. It, it's held to be a, a general epistle, a universal epistle. A lot of churches got it for everybody. But that's who he preached to. That's whom he discipled, all these Jewish believers. So, if they are at odds, you know, do you remember how, how Paul was angry at the Galatians because they started saying, you have to do circumcision, you have to do this, you have to do that. I mean, these two would have fought because it's not like they haven't seen each other ever. They never met. Again, they saw each other in, 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 in Acts 15. But now, go to Acts 21. I'm almost done with this part. Go to the book of Acts chapter uh, 21. We're doing a lot of Bible today. I want you to see your on the pages of your Bible how they, they, they really teach the same thing. They're in harmony uh, with each other. So Paul's going to Jerusalem. James is the leader of the movement, the Christian movement in Jerusalem. Paul's going there. They preach different gospels, right? Let's assume they are at odds. We know for a fact Paul doesn't hold back. We have Galatians. All right? He calls them stupid right off the bat. Beginning of the letter is like, oh, you stupid Galatians. Are you under a spell or something? Are you dumb? We know that Paul doesn't hold back. James... I mean, he seems to be pretty forceful here. In verse 20, he even calls, you know, this imaginary guy that objected to what he's teaching, he even calls him a foolish person. Listen to me, you fool. I'm going to tell you some things now. So we know that they're not necessarily guys that will back down from a conflict. Paul in Galatians, he'll say, I, I resisted Peter to his face because he was a hypocrite. Before those guys, uh, before the Jewish guys arrived, he was eating with the Gentiles, everything was fun, and he was fellowshipping. Then the Jews arrived, he didn't even talk to the guys anymore. So we know that Paul doesn't hold back, we know that, that uh, James doesn't hold back. So now they're going to meet in Jerusalem. <sighs> I mean, you expect James to be waiting for Paul with the octagon ready. I mean, it's on. If they think they're preaching different gospels and they're heretics, one regards the other as a heretic... I mean, this, this is going to go bad. So, uh, what is it? Let's start with verse 17. We're going to read a, a few verses. When we, this is Luke uh, narrating uh, the whole deal. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James. All right, it's on, guys. And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related to he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. What ministry? I've been preaching day and night justification by grace alone, through faith alone to these guys. That they don't have to add circumcision or anything else to warn God's favor. And God has been blessing them tremendously. Praise Jesus. James preaches a different gospel. Let's just assume for the sake of the argument. James is going to be livid now. So now they're going to fight. Or at least you would expect them to. And they heard it. They, James and the elders. And they heard it. When they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see brother, how many thousands there among the Jews of those who had believed, they are zealous for the law. And he goes on. Now if they preach different Gospels, verse 20, 21, they're the strangest reaction to a heretic I've ever seen. You expect them to fight or have a, a, a debate, not fight, have a robust, robust dialogue, right? And at least a debate, a council, they have to do cut out, they have to come to an agreement. But they don't. They fellowship and they share testimonies and they praise God together. I mean, James has been around for a while now. This, this was written early, maybe mid-40s uh, A.D. This meeting takes place in like 57, the later part of the next, next uh, uh, decade. I mean, this fight would have been on. Paul's been around for a while too. Certainly read James... But they praise God 
And they worshipped together. On account of Paul's testimony of what God has been doing with the whole justification by grace alone. The gospel of Jesus Christ where he lived and died for us. He took the punishment for our sins. And he was risen again on the third day. There's nothing I can top that, that work of atonement with. I only trust in that free grace and I'm saved. That's the gospel of Paul. And James is saying, Amen, brother. Preach it. Preach it. This is, like I said, this would be the strangest reaction to a heretic worshiping with them. Now, said all these things, I gave my best shot at showing harmony between James and, and, and Paul. Now, I, I trust that this is going to shed some light in our, in our text for today. Let's move on uh, to it now, and, and let's look at uh, James 14, uh, 2, vo- verses 14 through 26. Uh, in the beginning, we see that James's main concern is the kind of faith, like I said before, when he asks, asks can that kind of faith, that kind of faith save him? I mean, he asks two rhetorical questions, right? One of them is, what good is it? <coughs> Excuse me. What good is this faith? What good is it if you have faith but you have no works? The answer is, the answer is, is easy. It's obvious. This type of faith is no good. It does no good at all. The other one is, can that faith save him? Or this faith, does it save? Again, the answer is clear. No. The issue is very serious. I mean, do you think it's important for our people to know what kind of faith is saving faith? Are you kidding me? Thank you. Do you think it's an important subject for our people to know what kind of faith is saving faith? In James's mind, there is such a thing as counterfeit faith. Faith that doesn't save and people walk calmly and happily to their deathbed, going to an eternal separation with the loving presence and kindness and saving presence of God. And they have no clue because they think they have faith. They're deceived. James is saying, if anyone says you can have faith without working itself through love, that's a lie, guys. Don't believe. I mean, what's at stake here is nothing more than eternal salvation. Actual eternal salvation of your soul. This is not a, this is not a peripheral issue. It's not a side issue. This is a serious thing. You need to know what kind of faith saves. You know, sad faith, S-A-I-D, sad faith doesn't necessarily save you. To say you have faith, you know, honestly, it, it, it doesn't mean much. Talking is cheap. Actually, talking is free. It's not even cheap. It's free. Say you have faith doesn't doesn't necessarily do anything. James seems to think that there's very little room for the, the worksless faith. You know, I think he's teaching that works, if I can make up a word, worksless faith is worthless faith. It it is no good and it doesn't save. Now, verses fifteen and sixteen, he he goes on to give an example and show that the faith is no good. To the one that professes it, this type of faith, but it's also no good for anybody else. It's no good for those in need around them. It's no good for anybody else. Let's read 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and, and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, uh, what good is that? So, again, it's no good if you're faith. I mean, this guy is cold. He doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have uh, necessary clothes, enough clothes. And you just say, oh, be warm. Shalom, going peace. You see, like, the religious words, they're all there. But they mean squat if you actually don't love. It means that you actually don't love your brother and sister. 
It's no good for you who profess this type of faith. It's no good for the ones around you. It's no good for the body. I think it's very interesting that he gives an example of a sister or a brother being cold and hungry. In his mind, make no mistake about it, there is no room for indifference between brothers and sisters. There's just no room. It's unprecedented, it's unheard of, it's unbiblical. You're a Christian, you have saving faith, you have been justified, you will care for your brothers and sisters. You just have that desire. That's just how it is. You just have that desire. Just derive pleasure out of supplying for the needs of those around you that you love, that have been bought by the blood of Christ with you. It's just a fun thing to do. You just like it. And you wish always you could do more. That's just how it is. You can't, you can't really divorce works from faith. Now, in verse 17, his expectation for this, for faith working itself through love, it's so strong that James concludes, in verse 17, with a very nice word for this faith. Actually, it's a, it's a condemnation, severe condemnation. What is the name that, in verse 17, he calls this faith? Dead. That's a severe condemnation. When he calls the faith dead, I mean, dead bodies are decomposing, they're stinking, and we all know that dead bodies don't dance. Dead men cannot dance. They're unable to do anything. They're good for nothing. They're useless. Death. Death is an ugly word. And that's the word he applies to this type of faith. Because he biblically expects faith to work. That's, that's how it is. Now, he's not make, making up this idea out of thin air. He knows his, what we call the Old Testament. It was his scriptures back in the day, back in, in his day. Today we'll call it Old Testament. Now, God in the Old Testament made many, many promises. The promise of the new covenant, what we experience now, God makes that promise in, in Ezekiel uh, 36. I'm going to read verses 26 and 27. If you want, you can go there or you can just hear it. It's a promise of what we experience now, right? Faith, and God puts His Spirit in you. It, it's a promise of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So this is what the Lord says. It, it, it's a longer section. I'm going to read two verses to make this point. Verses 26 and 27 we see that it's really impossible to divorce works from faith. They're not against each other, not in addition to each other. That's what faith does. True, saving, justifying faith. Okay? So, um, let me read it. I got carried away. Ezekiel 36. It's in the, in the Old Testament, right? So if you are still awake, let me read it. And I, God, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Listen, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules or commandments. So when you receive a new heart, good works, they come with it. You get a new heart and you get good works for free. God just throws it in. They are a part of getting a new heart, a heart of flesh that is able to delight and follow and trust and love God. The heart of stone is gone. The dead heart is gone. Now you can pursue and love and seek God in the things that belong to His salvation. With that heart, good works come. That's in the promise right here that we read in Ezekiel. In 
Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he'll say that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works that anyone should boast. It's all of grace. And then in verse 10, he'll say, unto good works prepared beforehand for you. Good works, according to Paul, according to the Bible, is just the crowning of his salvation in you. Now, it grieves me when I see preachers, many of them brothers, sharing or preaching, teaching that you can divorce good works from from true saving faith when they say they, they're trying, and, and, and I get it, they're trying to protect salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. So they say, you know, if you had anything, if you have works, if you say that works are necessary for salvation, you're saying that, you know, you, you're attacking grace. They want to protect it. And, and, and I get that. I appreciate that. But I don't know what they do to verses like these. Like Ephesians 2, like, like Ezekiel uh, 36. The idea that you can be a Christian without being a disciple is, is just not true. And, and it has to stop. It has to stop. I mean, read James. When a preacher, heavy-hearted even, you say, uh, you know, you can be a Christian, you made a commitment, you meant, you know, to give your heart to Jesus, you know, but you can't waste your life and you still go to heaven. But you can waste your life by not being a disciple and being a carnal Christian. That's a myth. That's like an unicorn. There isn't such a thing as, as a carnal Christian. But, you know, uh, it's just not true. You cannot be a Christian without being a disciple according to the Scriptures. Good works come with justifying faith. This idea that you can be saved, meaning, meaning, Going to heaven when you die. Like salvation is a thing that, you know, it's a deal that you sign now, but it really takes effect once you die. You know, instead of going to hell, going to punishment, you go to eternal bliss, eternal joy in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. That idea can only survive this, this theology that say that, that say that, that say salvation is really for after death. Oh, but the glorious salvation of Christ is so much more than this. In Romans 8, we see that, you know, the, the order of salvation, 28 through 31. You know, Paul says, you know, certain things about the saved is that they are called, they are predestined, they're predestined, they are called, and how many of those are, they are justified, and how many of those are sanctified? All of them. They are sanctified, and then they will be glorified. When the Bible talks about salvation, the Bible uses phrases like, to those who are being, being saved. Will be saved and have been saved. The Bible talks about salvation in different uh, 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 time uh, references. Tenses, you know. Present, past, present, and future. The glorious salvation of Christ in Romans 8 will tell you that the goal of that salvation is to make you look like Jesus. It's conforming you to the image of His Son. And it starts now. It's a beautiful mass called sanctification. Where God day by day transforms you a little bit more into the image of His Son. It's not a deal that is going to take effect after you die. It starts now. I came to give life and life abundantly. That abundantly means in John 10.10. 10, it really means life eternal the life of the world to come, but it starts now. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. We have to understand these words in this context of the whole ball of wax, the whole of what salvation is, so we, cannot, so we won't fall into the trap of, yeah, I'm saved because I made a profession and I threw four black back flips in a row, and I, but now I just don't follow Christ. You know, I just... No. That kind of faith may lead you to eternal damnation. And that's James's pastoral heart speaking loudly to us here. Do not have 
counterfeit faith. Do not believe if someone tells you you can be a Christian without a disciple. That is not true. Don't fall into that trap. Into that trap. So he'll say that faith is dead, right? Verse 18, he'll say, someone might say, now this is a difficult verse, but we see that James is rejecting any, we already saw that he's rejecting, rejecting any divorce or dichotomy or separation between faith and works. We are seeing it. So when you see, when you see verse 18, he says he's anticipating an objection, and you see that the objection is within quotes. Now, I have to just be open and say that some would interpret the objection to be the whole verse. It's not my position. I don't think it, it fits. I think it forces the language a little bit. Now this, maybe it could have been the easy way out, but it's just I have to be honest with you, and it's not my position. Because when he says, let's see the objection, that is within quotes, someone might say, and then he quotes this, imaginary guy that is objecting to him. You have faith and I have works. And then he answers, he answered this guy, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show my faith by my works. So the objection is saying, you have faith and implying not works. I have works. But then when he answers, he's like, show me your faith without works, which is not necessarily what the guy said. I think this imaginary guy that he's playing here, he has just said, you have faith, and I have as two distinct things. And then he says, show your faith. The guy said he has works. He didn't say he has faith. So that makes it a particularly very hard verse to deal with. Just hypothetically, it may cause you to sit in front of your computer screen for an hour and a half without making a decision and, and, and almost crying. To understand it. Because you have read this verse for your, I mean, hundreds of times before and you never caught that. But anyway, that's just hypothetical. Uh, so I really think what James is doing is rejecting any dichotomy of faith against works, any divorce or separation between faith and works. He's been doing it, he does it again. He's like, Listen, here's the deal. Faith without works is dead. Show me faith without works, and I'll prove that I have faith by my works. That's how you show that you have faith, by works. Remember the whole news thing when 76% of the population says, no, I'm a Christian, and then you watch the news, you're like... There's got to be a discrepancy here. Something is amiss. Because there's no evidence for that profession. Now, that's what he's doing. I think it fits the context. And uh, he has been doing it already. Now, in the following verses, James will start giving us examples. Giving us examples of both justifying faith and false faith. Faith. Pseudo-faith. Counterfeit faith that will maybe lead you into God's condemnation. So he doesn't want his hearers to have that. And he starts giving uh, um, uh, examples. So, so far he has called this faith without works. He's called it no good in verse 14, right? Unable to save in verse 14 still. Then verse 17 he calls it dead. And now in verse 19, probably one of the nicest ones where he's really seeker-sensitive, he goes, that's demonic faith. You believe like the demons. And the example he uses, this is stunning. He uses the example of monotheism. I mean, the only culture that believed in one God, only this crazy idea, that was, that was the Jews. That was the Hebrews. And that is the core of the Jewish faith. That's part of the Shema that they recite all the time. Uh, daily, God is one here, O Israel, God is one. And he goes straight to that. Why does he choose one of the most important doctrines of the Jewish believers? You know, something that is core to our faith, that we're not polytheists. We're monotheists. Because he does not want his hearers to, to dismiss this as a side issue. 
That's James just being picky with the guys. He makes it a big deal once again when he says, you know, you believe that there's only one God? Well, good for you, buddy, because so do the demons. And you know what? They shudder. I mean, they tremble upon that truth. What he's saying is that mere acknowledgement of truth, intellectual, mental assent to truth, can save you no more than it saves the demons. Satan believes or acknowledges as true that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Satan knows for a fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. I mean, Satan spent 33 years daily tempting Jesus to make him sin. Unsuccessfully. Satan knows for a fact that Jesus is perfect and lived without sin. He's sinless. Satan knows for a fact that the wrath of God was in Christ Jesus on that cross. And Satan knows that God accepted his sacrifice because Jesus was risen again from the dead. And he lives today. And Satan and the demons know that. They don't doubt it. And they're shaking in their boots at the face of this truth of the gospel, but they are not saved because they only acknowledge the truth, but they do not have that constant stance of trust and love for God that shows itself in, in, in love towards those who are around you. Faith that works itself through love. Satan and the demons don't have that. Now, you... You don't want to believe like the demons, do you? Who here wants to have demonic faith? But he moves on. He gets a little bit more cheerful. He's not an angry guy. Okay? He gets a little bit more cheerful and he moves on to, to Abraham. Okay, So he goes from one side to the other. And he gives another example, and he's going to talk about Abraham. You know, he already said the faith that merely acknowledges doctrines to be true and does not produce loving deeds. They're no good, they're dead, and they're demon-like faith. It's demon-like faith, right? So uh, in verse 20, now he gets fired up, where he says, listen up, fool. Okay, <laughs> That's what he says. I'll show you faith. You want some of this? And he goes on, and he goes on, and he, I mean, and he calls, he calls the main player. Okay, let's talk about Abraham. You want to see faith? Come here. And and the first guy he calls in is the father of the faith. Right. So uh, now he's fired up. Okay. So let's go verse twenty-one. Okay, verse twenty. I gotta read this. This is this is good. Um, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That faith apart from works is useless? All right, I'll show you. Okay, so, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the, scriptures, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, quote, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now, he's quoting from, uh, from Genesis 15, 6. Classic text on, on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by the way. Paul uses it in Romans as well to make the very same point. They use it in, in the same way. Right, so, justification through grace, uh, uh, by grace through faith alone. Now, he does a few things with this. He deliberately mentions what the work of faith was. When his faith was being tested, what the work of faith was, uh, uh, Abraham. What was his work of faith? He gave his own son. And he was ready and he was ready to penetrate him with that knife, to sacrifice his own son. He offered up his son on the altar. That was his work of faith. Now, that would have, made, would have made the promise of God to give Abraham literally millions of descendants impossible. 
This is my only son. I'm going to kill him? There is no grandkids? I'm 100 years old, 100 something years old? Uh, this is not going to happen. I mean, I'm going to have to trust. I'm going to have to have faith. The book of Hebrews will, will, will tell us that he had faith that God could even raise him from the dead. But that's what, and he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 because of that. So James will tell us what the work of faith was, namely killing his own son and making the promise impossible, right? But then he'll say, he'll tell us that this was nothing more, this work of faith, it was nothing more than what? His faith being what? Active. His faith being active. Not a work on top of faith or a work as opposed to faith or adding works to faith or, you know, I don't really need faith, but I, I, I have all the works. Nothing like that. This was his justifying faith being active. And then he'll affirm once again, just like Paul does, he'll quote Genesis 15, 6. He believed God. What's another way to say he believed? He had faith. He believed God, and believing God, having faith, was imputed to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Having faith in God justified him. What kind of faith? This faith that was active and was ready to kill his own son, one and only son, believing that God could still keep the promise of giving him whole nations of descendants. In verse 24, we see what could have been the biggest problem. Now, in this context, when he says that we're not justified by faith alone, but through works, it, now, looking at this verse in this context, it makes, the, uh, it makes all the sense in the world, because the way James is talking about justification is about demonstrating your justifying faith. It's about, let's say, demonstrative justification, He's not talking about the only way to be saved. He's talking about what that only way looks like. Faith being active. He has just said it. I mean, this is serious because it's almost, and I hope you hear this, it's almost like he's saying that Abraham's justification depends, depends on faith and that faith working, or depends on the works of his faith as a necessary evidence for his faith, for his justification. Meaning, if you don't have works, if your faith is not producing loving deeds, James seems to think that there's very little reason for you to think you are saved. I hope this sinks in, because this is this is no joke. This is this is a, a hard, hard passage of scripture. James doesn't see a lot of room for fruitless Christianity, he, loveless Christians. You know, faith that does not obey the word is counterfeit faith. It, it really is. Now, yes, Placard Abraham used the best example, the best guy. And one might say, you know, that's Abraham. He's the father of the faith. He's able, I mean, his character, he's able to produce all these things. I'm average Joe Blow. I'm no Abraham. Then again, he goes in the human, the human realm. He goes to the lowest of example he can. He brings up a prostitute. Okay, so you're saying you're not able to do all these things because, you know, Abraham is such an example that you don't have his character. Let's bring someone with apparently no character. Someone who's seen by society as outcast, as someone despised. A life of prostitution. No, by the way, if James is teaching justification by works, is a horrible teacher right here. Because it's not like Rahab can show a lot. She's not necessarily the example you want to bring into the Jewish mind of the first century. But if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, God can save 
even the lowest or the so-called or regarded as lowest among ourselves. And that is a great example. Now, what did she do? Was her faith that because she was a, a, of low character and unable morally? Even the faith of someone so jacked up produced works. Now, that gives me hope because I'm not Mr. Perfection. Even the faith of someone that has a life of prostitution, even the faith of that person, God comes and He gives her hope and He gives her a new heart and He, he gives her His Spirit and He does all these things and He causes her to walk in His statutes and she risks her own life by lying to her people who want to kill the spies and say, you know what, guys, come here, go, go over there, hide, I'll take care of this. Even her, her own faith, this, let's call it like a little person in the mind of the Jewish, the, the Jewish first century. Even her faith produced works. Now James is saying, really, you have excuses? You're saying your faith does not produce it because you're just a, an average Joe Blow? That doesn't, it, it just doesn't fly. Now, James, I think, triumphantly, triumphantly ends this section just making clear what he's saying. And, and he puts an illustration forward and he says, you know, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead. See, we're not made of body only. We're made, there's an immaterial side to ourselves. And, and without that immaterial side, it's just the body. The body is dead. There's no life in it. Okay, so you, he puts that picture of a dead body, a corpse in front of you. And uh, like I said, stinking, decomposing, and not able to do anything. Useless, no good, right? And, and he says, you know, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now let's apply this. It's a little bit longer than I thought. Uh, let's apply this. You might be thinking, i got to run out of here and i got to do more. i got to do more. i got to do this stuff. Oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough. Look at look. No, 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 no. Stop, 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 stop. That's not what James is calling you to do. James is calling you to a life of faith. A life of faith that is tested through trials, chapter 1. A life of faith that perseveres through trials. A life of faith that in chapter 2 shows no partiality to those that are rich or have position or status. A life that asks, a life of faith that asks God for wisdom. A life that tames the tongue. A life that trusts Christ in everything and believes that He has prepared those works and the works are, being pre- are going to be present. And you are going to be faith- faced with situations in, in your life that you need to trust, you need to live in faith, you need to trust Christ and His free grace that He's got this, He has already prepared this. He's only calling you, come play with me. He doesn't need you, your neighbor does. And daddy's saying, let's, let's go. I'm going to save some people. You want to come? I'm going to clothe some people today. You want to do it? We say it all the time. I pray that you know, God would be seen in our midst. How can God be seen? Jesus thinks that you know, they'll know that we're his disciples by the love that we have for one another. Jesus seems to think that uh, by our fruits we will be known. But the fruit of faith, James is not calling you to do more. Maybe in your own life, now that you are more aware of this, that this is maybe tugging at your heart, maybe you are going to do more. I don't know. Maybe God has certain things planned for you. But the issue is faith. What saving faith, justifying faith looks like. And that is what is to be pursued. Tuesday afternoon when you face with situations, you know, God, I'm going to trust. I'm not sure how this is going to play out, but you have said you're... You prepared works for me, and in the promise of the new covenant, you said it would give me good works. I'm in, God. I'm all in. That's what James is calling you to do, and that's my prayer for you, that you would live a life of faith, a life of a constant stance of trust in God that works itself through love. Amen? Amen. Amen. So... um, 
Let's pray and then let's worship God in singing. Lord Jesus, you are good. You are good and we rejoice once again because your word is living. And thanks for telling us what what saving faith is so we can spot counterfeit faith when it's far away and we run from it. Lord Jesus, we don't want to have demonic faith. We don't want to be like the demons. We want to be like you. We want to live in, in perfect delight. Our, um, our ambition is to please you, God. And we can do it only if you make it our ambition, if you cause us to walk in our statutes. And confidently we pray and we thank you because you have promised and you keep your promises. I pray now that this, this week you'd cause this to be in the forefront of our minds and hearts and that we would really be transformed. And, and when we're faced with situations, we would step out in faith and, and let our faith work in love. In your holy, beautiful name I pray. Amen.